This podcast is presented by DistroKid, an incredible service for musicians that helps you upload your songs to all music streaming platforms from iTunes to Spotify and Apple Music, then pays you revenue from your songs all in one place. They've got a really cool new feature called Splits that allows you to add collaborators so you can pay your co-writers and fellow musicians without needing an accountant. To get 30% off your first year's DistroKid subscription, just head to distrokid.com slash VIP slash hard times. Welcome to the first ever podcast. I am your host, Jeremy Bohm. If this is your first time here, this is a show where I interview artists of all kinds about the first experiences in their art form that led them to where they are today. This is episode 110, and my guest this week is Nathan Williams of the band Waves. We had this awesome conversation a couple months back, just before he embarked on the 10-year anniversary tour for King of the Beach, and it was a really awesome conversation. I'd never met Nathan before. Uh, we got in touch via social media and just had a really lovely chat, so I really hope you enjoy this. I want to let you know that there's a bonus episode available right now where Nathan answered questions that were submitted by subscribers. You can access that by subscribing to the Patreon over at patreon.com slash the first ever Patreon. And uh, it helps support the show and you get bonus episodes, all sorts of fun stuff. Um, head on over to the Patreon to check that out, uh, especially if you're new here. If, uh, if Nathan brought you here, welcome. I, uh, I appreciate you checking the show out. Um, also, I want to throw out there, if you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple or Spotify or wherever you're enjoying this, please do so. That would mean a whole lot to me. And uh, again, it helps support the show. Leaving a positive rating and review, always very helpful. Um, yeah, I appreciate it. What else is up? Uh, oh, I leave for tour next week. So um, don't worry. As I've been saying, um, I've got plenty of conversations recorded. Um, I have them actually recorded leading up until the new year. That's how many I've done. So uh, strap in. There's a lot of really, really wonderful conversations ahead. Um, but I won't take up any more of your time. I appreciate you being here. Sit back, enjoy. This is me talking to Nathan Williams. Hey, Nathan, how are you today? I'm doing fantastic. How are you? I'm, I'm doing well. Uh, are you a morning person? Is this, uh, is this normal time for you? What's your story? Oh, I'm, yeah, as I got older, I sleep less and less. So I wake up at like 7 a.m. Nice. Do you, are you a go to bed early guy? I am right now because I always do like a month, month and a half off of drinking before tour. So oh. I get in bed pretty early because um, I'm not out at bars embarrassing myself. <laughs> what's the what's the idea going into the not drinking leading up to tour? Is it so that you can drink on tour or is it <laughs> what's what's the like, are you prepping your body for it? What's the plan there? Yes, uh, sort of. Well, I originally started doing it 
because I was um, when waves first started like heavily touring, I was maybe gone nine, 10 months of the year, like really heavy touring. And yeah. so when I would get home, if I kept drinking, then I would be drinking 12 months out of the year pretty heavily. Yeah. Sure. You just can't keep that up. So as I got older, hangovers got worse and that sort of thing. You just give the body a little bit of a break. Sure. I remember reading that uh, Matt Berninger, the singer of the national does not drink off tour because on stage, like he'll take down like two bottles of wine during their set. And you're just like, yeah, how how do you keep that up? That's crazy. Yeah. It's a tough. Yeah. And the thing is like all all of the other guys in the band are their total, their total ragers. So even if I'm like trying to take it easy, it's always there. They're, you know, out going crazy. So yeah, you know, moderation is, is always good. And if you can't practice moderation, then practicing some sort of discipline is good. Like just making sure that you can stop. I feel like that's important. That is important. Absolutely. And you got Ross playing drums for you right now, right? Yeah. I love that guy. I love Ross. I haven't seen oh, you know him in Ross. a long time. I know Ross. Yeah. He was uh he was playing drums for culture abuse when I had toured with them. And uh he was this um just shining sweetheart amongst that amongst that group. And yeah, love him I know. so much. He's, he's yeah, such a he guy. was he was in our back. So we took culture abuse on tour a couple years ago as well. And Ross sort of migrated towards our backstage every night. And yeah. when our drummer at the time, um, Brian, who's such a sweetheart, he was uh, he was um, going to school to be a paralegal. And he was like, I just sort of can't keep up the touring schedule anymore. First, everybody was like, oh, Ross makes total sense. Yeah. So, yeah, he's been fuck now, like maybe two and a half, three years Oh, that's amazing. Is he yeah. is he living in LA? I don't know if I know that. Or is he up in the Bay? Nah, he's still in the Bay. He's in Oakland. Okay. That makes sense. That yeah. makes sense. So yeah, we're I, all in different places now. I'm in San Diego now. Uh Ross is in Oakland. Um, our guitarist Alex is in New York and Steven is in Memphis. So we're oh, cross country, cross country boys. Yeah. You being someone who has always been like primary songwriter and you know, in the early days, I know, did a lot of the recordings yourself and stuff like that. Is that, does that make things difficult for you? Or does it seem kind of like, you know, uh, not far off from what you were used to when the band started? Yeah, not probably not far off. It, it is, uh, and especially now with everybody sort of got a home setup. So I send them ideas every day. Um, and I have a Patreon where I post like demos and stuff uh, weekly. So whatever I post to my Patreon, I send to them as well. Um, and just to sort of get it in their head, like, Hey, this might be a thing later. Yeah, exactly. And also to get feedback because I send them so much, like I I spam them because I record so much. So, you know, Ross now, especially because I send a lot of ideas because I like to figure out percussion stuff first. I do like melody first and foremost and then percussion that's sort of how my process goes so i send ross a lot of this stuff first so if he doesn't respond to me then i know like oh this sucks if so i'm i'm assuming that like back in the day you were probably just doing like garage band drums or something like that over it so do you even do you even go into an idea with 
putting any sort of percussion over to it over it or do you just like send it to to ross as like hey what would you do over this uh no i i i use like a so i have like a in a kai um mpk as okay. just like a midi uh controller and i use this like boss dr 550 um which is like i actually used to have the uh actual uh boss machine um I think it's in storage now, or maybe I lost it when I moved to San Diego, but I just, I found it on splice actually. I don't know if you've ever used splice, but they just have this little drum. Oh, it's cool. So it's like a monthly, um, service where it just like loads of, um, free sample packets. So all sorts of stuff that you can use. Um, so I found a pack of just like, it's maybe like eight or nine, um, little triggers just like a bass drum tom snare crash hi-hat whatever so i get like little ideas and they sound like shit but like it gives him an idea of just like how i sort of should move and sure sometimes he'll be like no this it will work better this way but he also has a um like a little electronic drum kit and so he'll send me stuff sometimes and i can like just chop that up and use it as well oh that's awesome that's super cool um, you're from San Diego originally, right? I was born in LA, but went to high school in San Diego. Oh, okay. Uh, what was the, what was the point of the move to just, uh, was military family, anything like that or. So everybody growing up always asked me military family. Cause I also lived in Norfolk, Virginia, which is the oh, wow. second yeah, that largest totally. military base. Right. Yeah. Um, no, my dad has, uh, seven, uh, college degrees. He's got, uh, so I lived in, um, so when I was in LA, he was, uh, going to UCLA and then he, we moved to Yale. So I lived in student housing in New Haven and then Virginia, he went to, he was teaching at a school called Hampton university and, um, back to San Diego and he, he teaches, uh, in San Diego now. Wow. That's impressive. What, uh, what does he teach? theater uh speech and communication wow interesting um did that did any of that stuff ever trickle down to anything you wanted to pursue ever uh no but uh in high school i got arrested and um got to choose um community service over jail time and he let me do my community service um helping out in the theater i was a i played an extra um, in this play that he was doing, I can't remember what the play was called, but I was a dead body. And so I just had to come and they would like load me through this window each night. And he still tells me like one of the like last two nights I like just didn't show up. And he's like, I should have just called the cops and had him come get you. <laughs> but he, they, they got somebody else to be the dead body and they covered for me. So thanks dad. How long were you on stage just laying still? Well, not very long. I, I would lay, I think they, I, I honestly, I don't remember, but I just remember like, it was like sort of a funny scene, arsenic and lace, arsenic and old lace. I think that's what it was. Okay. I don't sure. remember these things, but I was a dead body and they would load me in and then like somebody knocks at the door and they're like, Oh no, no, no. And so they'd load me back out. It was like kind of a funny scene. Yeah. Uh, but you know, maybe 10, 15 minutes, like it wasn't, it wasn't, it wouldn't be hard to do, especially okay. like to just, you know, 
complete the community service hours, but that's got to be one of the most interesting community service uh, punishments I've ever heard in my entire life. So respect to that. But uh, that's incredibly funny too. I was going to say like, if your whole, if like it was like maybe you set in one scene and there was a dead body throughout the entire, like, you know, three hour performance, I was going to say that's a true study in patience, you know? No, it was way easier than that. And I still <laughs> okay. couldn't, couldn't, couldn't pull it just, off. You know, no, I was uh, not a great, not a great kid. Yeah, sure. Um, well, then let me ask you this. When you were growing up, um, what was the first thing that you connected with musically that felt like it was yours? Maybe not something that was being played in the house, but something that like you discovered on your own and maybe gave you some sort of identity. Yeah. Yeah, I hear like a lot of people talk about um, like sort of the classics. Like I, I grew up, my parents grew up listening to, my mom loved like Joni Mitchell and... Um, Fleetwood Mac and the Beatles and all that stuff. And I thought I didn't like it because my parents liked it. So I don't think any of that was cool when I was younger. Right. Um, The first music I like connected with, I I can remember like, I don't know how old I was, but you know, it was probably something off of the radio. And like the one that sticks out to me the most is um, semi-charmed kind of life. You remember that song? Yeah, of course. Third Eye Blind. Yeah. Third Eye Blind. And that was that ended up being my first show too. It was, it was like a festival. It was called Ninety One X Fest. It was in Virginia. Okay. And I was probably like eleven, something like that. And it was like Everclear, um, Third Eye Blind, and um, this band called the Cherry Pop and Daddies. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> they had that that, that suit that zoot suit right. Yeah. That <laughs> yeah. brief that brief mid nineties weird swing revival that ha- lasted for like you know six months i think yeah i was gonna say eight months tops and it yeah was it out. was like it was like squirrel nut zippers cherry pop and daddies which is a terrible fucking band name and um yeah. uh brian sets orchestra when that when and brian sets orchestra exactly yeah yeah, yeah. um Damn. yeah that's like a perfect radio show too the fact that those three would be somehow playing together like oh my oh, god absolutely absolutely <laughs> um so that was probably like the beginning of it but then you know like once I did that, I think my mom took me to that show too, like to make sure, cause I was so young. And then after that, I started going, like getting into, I think I maybe told one of my friends that was like older and they were like, you know, you're like a young kid. I think like one of the responses from like one of my friends was like, like third eye blind is gay. And I was like, what? Wait, Wait. what? The, you know? And then like, started uh sort of like getting into like more like the local scene of things going to record stores and finding out what sort of more shaping like my music taste that was and that was all in virginia that was like the beginning yeah that was the beginning because i was like that was where i started middle school so i think like 10 to 13 14 you know that was when i really started that was when my parents like allowed me to start going to shows and that sort of stuff. But I was in a Christian school at the time, um, which I ended up getting kicked out of later on. But so they were still like pretty strict. So what I listened to and what I did had to sort of either correlate with what, yeah, correlate with what they thought was okay or had to be sneaky about it. Got it. And was, 
you said it was in North. Was that venue the Norva? Was that like a spot that you went to when you were oh, younger? Man, I don't remember. So I just did a, you know, Damien uh, from fucked up. Fucked up. Uh, we're like internet friends. Yeah. Okay. I, I just did his podcast. And so like, uh, turned out a punk. So like, that, yeah. it's a, like a lot of the similar questions. Right. And so I had to like, kind of think, and people have been asking me like where, because some of my first shows were, um, MXPX and uh, Kid Dynamite, a lot of like uh, Jade Tree, yeah, yeah, Deep Elm Records, Jade Tree, uh, a lot of like early emo and like punk stuff, and I, I don't remember any of the names of the the venues or the record stores. I just remember like seeing those bands. Sure. Yeah, of course. Uh, well, then when did you start uh, playing an instrument? Was guitar your first instrument? Yeah, th- I think 13. So I had f- two friends that were started a band and one was a drummer and the other was a guitarist. And my friend that was a drummer, his parent or his family was well off. And uh, I said that I wanted to play guitar. And so um my mom that we were on a soccer team together and my mom talked to their parents and they basically just gave me the guitar for, for my birthday. And so that oh, was wow. how I learned. Yeah. What, what kind of guitar was it? It was a, like a Squire, like a Fender knockoff, just a yep. Stratocaster. Just the, yeah. The and I like covered black. it, covered it. Yeah. Classic black covered it in stickers. Right. I was not yeah. a vegetarian, but I put like anti fur stickers cause PETA was like constantly like passing those out everywhere. And then I got like a pack of stickers from Epitaph, Fat Records, like Nitro and Epitaph, Fat Records, Nitro and like Lookout maybe or like Fearless. Yeah. 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 One of those, one of those, one of the ones that was doing like the compilation CDs because that's like sort of how I was getting into music. And then I just covered the guitar. So yeah, I asked my, I asked my buddy recently that I was in the band with um, if he had any pictures of us from back then. And we found a couple of us at uh, VBSP, which is like Virginia beach skate park going to shows and stuff, but I still haven't found a picture of that guitar. I'm, I'm oh, shoot. I'll get it. And did it just get lost to time? I don't know what happened to it. Yeah. I'm not sure. I think like, cause we, when we moved back to San Diego, we drove my, my, parents had a volvo like a volvo station wagon and they just like threw everything in the volvo station wagon and we left i think probably like just couldn't fit so fair enough all right had some things seek out a sacrifice i understand uh what was <laughs> yeah what was the uh what was the vibe of that first band what were you guys doing we were called one step short and it was okay. like a pop pop punk band no singer two guitars and a drummer so that was okay <laughs> That was the vibe. Yeah. Um, I think we'd like added a singer or not added a singer. My friend Mike started singing like later. And I think then people didn't like it, but we would just like play parties and stuff like that. Yeah. I was going to ask what the first show you played was then. Yeah. It was my friend Bailey's birthday party. And I don't remember like a ton, except like there was a, um, there was a, not a jungle gym, a fucking a trampoline. There was a trampoline there oh, okay. and people had these giant boxing gloves and were jumping on the trampoline and boxing. And the, there were parents there too. And they just, I remember like, 
Yeah, yeah. It's very Virginia. And um definitely somebody cried. Somebody ended up crying. Um they got punched too hard or something, but that's that was the first one. Fair, fair. Yeah, the uh I I you just took me back. There was either everyone either had <clears throat> they were like the boxing gloves that were just there was a circle in the top and you put your hands in it and they were just huge, right? It wasn't like boxing, boxing gloves, but it was, yeah, a, yeah, it was yeah. like the inflatable ones, right? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Uh, a lot of people, I think, got early concussions from those oh. in those exact scenarios. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of CTE going around with kids our age who thought like, oh, it's okay. And those things yeah. hurt. Fucking hurt. Absolutely. Yeah. They did. Yeah. A thousand percent. Yeah. Deceiving. Um, yeah, totally. Were you guys like playing like covers and stuff? Were you like learning like Blink One Eighty Two songs or like MXPX no, songs? We, no, we just ripped. We just ripped them off. We basically played "Damn It" like four or five times in a okay. row in yeah. different keys, and <laughs> and we called it our own. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, so, when you moved back to San Diego, what happened next for you musically? Well, I went to high school. Um, and I didn't know anybody cause I just, cause I moved ninth grade. So like the start of high school, I didn't know anybody. And so I didn't have like friends or anything. So I wasn't, I sort of stopped playing music, started skateboarding a lot more. And that was sort of how I like made friends. Um, and then I started going to shows probably like, you know, six months into that. And then basically dropped out of high school for a while and, or well, I dropped out of high school, the public high school I was going to and like did like a, um, like a charter school okay, and finished. And I, I didn't really start playing again in a band until maybe I was like 19, something like that. Okay. What do you think changed? Was it, that you discovered a certain kind of genre that excited you and made you feel like it was something you wanted to participate in? Or do you remember really what the motivation was to pick it back up? Mm, probably like to get girls, honestly. Fair. Like, yeah, something like that. Like I, I was going to a lot of shows. So I was in San Diego. So like the, my weekends were at like the Che Cafe. So I would go and see the Locust or I'd see Blood Brothers or like whoever was I mean, they were playing every weekend, right? Yeah. Um, and so I, I got into that sort of like GSL, 3-1-G sort of thing that was happening at the time. Um, and I that was not something that I had been into when I was in Virginia. Um, I don't even know. It probably wasn't even really going on at that point. But like that that was the scene in San Diego. Oh, yeah. If, yeah, then, if you're in San Diego in that time, you're just basically handed a white belt. And you're like, you're, yeah, you're going, <laughs> you're, yep. you're coming to the show. And uh, if you can make your hair big, you're going to do that. But if not, it's OK. We'll still just exactly. let you in as long as your as long as your uh, pants are tight. And you got this white belt on. You're going to be OK. Oh, there are definitely pictures of me, but I didn't have the big hair. I had straight across bangs, like cut them at the very top, like Prince Albert. And then like long, like long in the back, um, which was like yeah. another thing that. With well, big in San Diego, like that seventies coke. Yeah, because well, they did like the. It was called like they called themselves, or people call it like Spock Rock, where they had like the Spock haircut from yeah, from yeah. Star Trek. But you had it long in the back. Now that's fascinating. Yeah, I'll I'll, I'll send you a picture after this. It is an, a very interesting look. Um, <laughs> and then uh, 
when I was 19, I moved to Portland for about a year. And that was when I started, that was when I started playing music again. I was in a band called Ikebana that was send, we were like making tapes and playing local shows. Made a like split with this band called Cheering Pinks that was from uh, Victoria, BC and like a couple of little things. And my friend that was like, had started the band, he was like doing most of the writing and stuff like that. And after a few months, I was kind of like, okay, I think this is what I want to do. I don't want to like, because it's just working retail or whatever. And um, so I moved back to San Diego. I started working at, uh, I started managing a record store called Music Trader. And okay. um that sort of, I started just like, I brought, I would bring a guitar to work. And when people weren't there, I would just start like working out my own songs. And so that was so like 20, 21. When you were in Portland and the music you were making up there, was it, was it like kind of an early genesis of what the sound of waves was, or was it like kind of like the lo-fi stuff or what was that up there? Uh, it was, I guess it was sort of the lo-fi thing because that was what was starting to happen at the time. Right. Like Sheer sure. Pinks had done, they were sort of in that like tape scene that was happening, which would like lead to like uh fuck it tapes, woodsist, um, and that like blank dogs, uh, Jay Riotard, like people that were like home recording, lo fi sort of was getting more popular. Yeah. Um, but again, like Ikebana, I for whatever reason, these bands that I was in, like I couldn't figure out the instruments. So, like, one step short, my first band was two guitars and a drummer, and then Ikebana, this band in Portland we had two bassists for some reason. I don't know it's why. A terrible and sound. I'm sorry. Let's, let's just admit two bassists. It's a terrible sound. What are you doing? Oh, it was awful. I think we were just like anybody that wanted to be in the band. We we're like, Oh sure. Oh, you can't play guitar. I bet you could play like bass if you just, so yeah. Um, sure. But then like <clears throat> at that time, I think, I think I, it was probably one of those things where I was like, I can a little bit of like, I don't like this songs that we're making or playing but i do like playing music i like doing this were you singing so, in this band no uh no not yet i don't think so i think i was just i think i was one of two bassists okay okay yeah. so you're partly responsible but let's oh, yeah. <laughs> what what was uh so at what point did you get the maybe not the right word but i was gonna say courage to start singing like when did that enter your head like was it still a ways away i came back to san diego and started another bad band with a couple of friends and i was doing all of the recording for it and um the two friends i was in the band with were sort of busy doing other things and um my other friend was the singer and uh, at that point when he was like not showing up for to record or whatever we were playing like local gigs and it seemed like it wasn't really like going anywhere i was like okay i'm just going to start recording like different songs by myself and so i recorded the first wave song um and i th i put it on myspace i think mm -hmm. and uh got like a little traction and then I recorded one more and I just was like, okay, I'm just going to send, I'm going to like cold email a few people, whatever. So I sent them around and I think fuck it tapes or woodsist. I think Jeremy probably 
responded and was like, yeah, I'll release this. And I was like, okay, so I'm just going to do this. So I kept doing that for a while. And then like after maybe a month, I had like, you know, five or six, seven inches lined up and I hadn't even recorded anything but the two songs. So I was like, oh, I guess I got to record. You're saying like people willing to put out seven inches for you? Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. So, uh, cause yeah, I saw, um, with like that specifically that the, the, uh, the first waves release, which was put out, but yeah, by Woods and, uh, and fuck it tapes. Um, did you play all the instruments on it? Was it just like, how did you go about that? Or did you have other people playing on it eventually? No, the first two or three records, uh, I played all the instruments and, um, recorded it myself. Yeah. Wow uh and 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 obviously you started singing and all of that like did you like how was that well actually let's backtrack a little bit so like you said you you know you started to learn how to record where did that come from like and what was your first step into teaching yourself how to record um sort of trial and error i i had garage band so i was like okay i'll just stick with garage band because i sort of most user-friendly thing and then like just developing the sound and like we were talking about right like so i it does take courage to start singing like it's yeah. embarrassing to hear yourself sing totally. um so that was probably why i started aesthetically with like pretty those early recordings sound like shit like i just wanted it to be like a big wall of trash like total so you could kind of like put your voice in there but it's a little lower in the mix probably a lot of reverb that kind of yeah that that was the thing that was popular too like vivian girls did the same thing where it was like you just take your voice real low you fucking add a shitload of slap back to it a little bit of overdrive and it sort of mellows the anxiety of letting people hear you sing totally you're playing guess the note and it's just it's sort of all happening right um and uh i mean i applaud you for doing that and then further having the courage to send it to people and say hey would you put money behind this you know like that's a that takes courage in itself nobody had seen my face so this was part of it Uh, i i had one picture of like the album art that was going on or like a kid skateboarding like i just sort of like developed an aesthetic i don't even think i wrote my name I just wrote like a few things that I thought aesthetically worked. And then when I was sending things out, I was basically an anon. Like I, I, I was anonymous to, to a certain point where people like I, nobody saw my face until um, vice magazine wrote like a first like imprint article about me. And then like, that was the first time anybody besides like the people that I had told. Sure. And what year was that when vice did that article? Probably like leading up to the LP, so 2008 or 2009. Today's episode is brought to you by Anchorfish Printing. Hey, are you in a band? Do you run a label? Or maybe you just want to make some merch for fun. You should hit up Anchorfish Printing. They've been taking care of bands for over 15 years. I first met the owner, Michael, when my band Touche Amore started, and he was our go-to guy. You can visit what they have to offer over at anchorfishprinting.com. You can hit them up for all your merch needs, whether it's screen printing, embroidery, or maybe you just need some stickers. Mention the first ever podcast and get 10% off your order. Wow. Okay. I mean, yeah. what what do you find, like, what do you think that 
the first step towards that was and like how were you accepting all of a sudden that kind of attention that had to have been kind of surreal well i wanted the attention i mean i was excited now because i was like oh i'm popping so now yeah. you can all right i know that i'm like i haven't failed at this if i had failed nobody saw me and then i could just pack it up and a few people would know but now that like oh these labels are putting out my music and vice and fader and pitchfork and whatever are writing about me then now i'll take all the you're on to something yeah 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 uh so then what was the first waves show um it all everything sort of happened like backwards probably later that year it all happened the like first year so probably all 2008 2009 and i don't know at some point somebody offered me a show in new york Actually, I think it was John Chavez, who's still my booking agent. He was like, hey, do you want to play a show in New York? And then a friend of mine is a booking agent in Europe, and they've offered you a, a like a UK and a Europe, European tour. And I'd never left the US, so I was like, yeah. Actually, I'd never been to New York either. So I was like, yeah. So, And, had you, got, and I'm assuming with the other bands, had you not toured? I hadn't even played with anybody because I was recording everything myself. So totally. I totally, but I practiced. mean, like even with other with other bands and stuff, like had you ever done a first tour? No. Wow. Surreal. No, yeah. I, I with that one band in Portland, I think we played like Portland, uh, Olympia, Seattle, and back. And so, like, we had done three shows, and I remember telling people that I had toured. But then, like going on like, like an the actual weekend tour. warrior, yeah, totally, yeah, going on like an actual tour, to, like to the point where you like lose your mental clarity and break down. Then I was like, oh, okay, now I've now I've toured. So was the first so potentially the first wave show was in New York? No, it was right before that. I played a show in San Diego with a drummer um, at this place called the Sandwich House. It was just like a, a Halloween. I think it was a Halloween party, maybe. And, um, and then the next show, and then I think the next show was, yeah, in New York, it was just me and a drummer for one tour. And then, um, I did like a European tour where I just sort of like more like bit off more than I could chew. I went back home, like canceled the whole tour halfway through. Cause I was just like partying way too much. Didn't know what to expect or how to handle it right because i had never toured and uh, like a lot of attention and then went home uh and that's when i was like okay you know what i need to like put together a band and that's when steven and billy from jay retard joined ways okay i gotta ask like so when you played new york then was that like a show that had a lot of hype and ex excitement because of all these articles that were coming out. Like was, what do you remember from that show? Like, was it terrifying? Was it exciting? Like, how did you feel? Excited. I, I it probably didn't sound very good, um, but excited that like people were at a show because the shows that I had previously played, you know, it's like 10, 15 people that are showing up and they're not showing up even for you. There's 50 or a hundred people in the crowd. They're showing up for uh, like the band that I was in before waves, we had opened up for like vampire weekend and like some bands that were, you know, would go on to like get bigger at like play like small shows, like at the Casbah or whatever. But the, the people weren't there to see you. So yeah. the 
start playing shows where even if it sounded bad, there were people there to see you. Like that was, I thought that was cool. You said you'd never been to New York. So like how exciting was that? I'm assuming weekend or something like that. You fly out, you see the big city and you know, you're going to play there. Like, do you have many memories from that? Um, yeah. Like I, I remember like the, the cabbie was like, uh, charged me like $150 to take me from the airport. And I was like, what the fuck? And then the, I was staying at the promoter's house, this guy, Todd P and I was like, I don't have any money. And then like, I went upstairs and he had to like yell at the guys. Like, why are you trying to rip him trying to rip off tourists? Like, fuck you. And then he like gave him, you know, whatever. Yeah. $60 or whatever the actual the normal rate price is. was. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And then, uh, and then I played, I think we played a few shows. You know what? I think that first show might've been market hotel. Okay. Maybe. So, um, with like blank dogs and a couple of that, those bands that we were talking about earlier, the like sort of, uh, woodsist scene. Got it. Got it. Um, and then, so the second record, um, is now you've now got signed to fat possum for that. Right. Right. Um, it's, I forget, where's Fat Possum based out of? Are they the South? Dennis yeah, um, not Memphis. Uh, Mississippi. Oh, Mississippi. Okay. Okay, yeah. got it. Um, and, I mean, how did that come your way? Was that just, was it, were you getting kind of like a feeding frenzy of different labels at that point? Because you had all this, you know, uh, publicity hype and all of that. And they had, they made the most sense. Uh, what do you remember from that experience? Yeah, I was having like, I was getting a bunch of offers from different people. And at that point I was like, okay, um, I should probably hire a lawyer to figure out like, cause I don't know anything about contracts or whatever. Yeah. And, uh, so I hired a music lawyer, um, through a friend of mine and went over and, um, all of the stuff and the fat possum. I, I liked Matthew Johnson a lot. He's just sort of like a weird cowboy, um, and, uh, so, uh, in person, we sort of, uh, he let me like wheel and deal with him a little bit. Um, we'd like go and just get blasted together. And I'd be like, I don't want you to own my music for seven years. That feels, I've never done this before, but that doesn't feel right. And he's like, well, that's a normal deal. And I was like, well, that doesn't, that's not normal to me. I don't like that. So, okay, well, five years and do this. Oh, whatever. And then the next day I'd be like, I tell the, um, lawyer, lawyer. okay, yeah. change the seven to five and change this to this, whatever. And then the structure was still just like a basic indie deal, which, which isn't great, but like, you know, I never ran into any issues. Like a lot of bands at the time with getting merch, uh, percentages taken from them or flat out stuff owned, you know, in perpetuity, yeah. that sort of thing. So. Sure. Uh, and then you made the decision to self-produce that record as well, right? Um, I did. And then, but it was a, so they signed a two record deal. So it was, a, again, like a bunch of songs that I had self-produced and then um, King of the Beach, which I agreed I would go into a studio and I would, I would finish off the songs that I had recorded, self-recorded. And then I would step into a studio and do like a something bigger and the guy that i agreed to do it with this guy dennis herring was in mississippi it was somebody that they knew um and it was a place that you know they could come and check in on me because i think they were still sort of thought i was a wild card um 
to this sort of like keep me at arm's length. Um, yeah, I uh, I looked up uh, Dennis Herring and I was pretty uh, psyched on some of the stuff that he worked with. And I was curious what that connection was because I was like, damn, my boy worked with like Counting Crows and uh, yeah, Counting Crows, Crows and like <laughs> another another uh, like Christian rock band. I can't remember who it was. Um, so I was sort of like, what the fuck? Like this is a weird thing. But he because I was in Mississippi uh talking to fat possum and so there and i was like i don't this is not my vibe like i don't really like any of the records that he's done besides like the modest mouse record i was like that's kind of cool and the way they sold me on it they're like come see the studio and uh animal collective had just done sung tongs there and i was a big animal oh, collective wow. fan at the time and sure. so i was like well maybe the studio is like worth it he's like so i went in there i talked to dennis and i saw the studio the studio was like incredible and he assured me that like I would be able to basically produce it myself, but they would just be like physically doing it. But like I, I could figure like this is how I wanted to sound. This is and it did we did run into like situations where it was like we'd argue for days because I was still in the mindset of like you need to lower my vocals and you need to add reverb to them. And they're like, bro, this is not what we're doing anymore. Like you gotta get over this thing. Yeah. And what, what was the, did you figure out a compromise? Because obviously that, I mean, that record sounds great. You know, it it does like, I and I feel, and that's, if I'm incorrect, correct me, but like, I feel like that's the record that really blew your career up. Like and made you, that was like the popular record, right? Yeah. That was like the billboard top 100 or whatever. That was like when I was actually started, that was when I really started actually making money as like, okay, this is a living for me now. Yeah. <clears throat> and it was it was probably partly due to these conversations that we had. Now, something that is interesting about it was we never came to a compromise. I said no, and they said, okay, fine, we'll lower it. And then they just didn't, which I w- would be pissed about, except like you're just elated that it worked. Yeah. So, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, whatever. you what you had done to you was what every uh, one who anyone who plays a uh, a stringed instrument does to the sound person at venues when they say can you turn down and then you you just touch your knob you don't actually do it yeah, and, uh, yeah. So, so they 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 pulled that one on you and uh, and it yeah. seemed to have worked <laughs> uh, if it wouldn't I'd, have worked I would have blamed yeah. them sure. and it gave you uh, it gave you an ultimate it gave you that opportunity to say this isn't my fault. Yeah, exactly. I was always in the right. What do you think, um, you know, hindsight sort of situation, do you think your reason for wanting to bury the vocals was still a lack of confidence in your singing or was it this is the sound of waves? Um, Probably. Hmm. Interesting. Probably a lack of confidence. Like you're still at a point there where i'm getting a lot of attention but this is after uh i played this show primavera where i like a primavera meltdown where i like have this big show get too fucked up people are sort of like uh going after me saying that i was a shot in the pan and i couldn't really write songs and it was all because i just like buried my vocals and i had these like production techniques whatever so part of like recording this like crisp big studio record was to show like hey I can write songs 
And then like when you're in the process, it definitely still creeps into your head. Like, fuck, maybe these people are right. Maybe I like can't write songs. I still think like that sometimes. Like the, you're, I talked to Damien about this. You're constantly in this business in the arts in general, I think, unless you're a sociopath, you're constantly having this internal dialogue where it's like th- this imposter syndrome. Like, should I actually be here? I still have that after 15 years in the music business where I'm like, can I, am I even good at doing this? Like I, I think it all the time. So. Uh, a, a reoccurring thing that, uh, listeners of this show will, will be like, yeah, he's going to say it. I, I stand by it. I swear to God, uh, I will scream from the rooftops. If you don't have imposter syndrome, um, I don't believe in you whatsoever. You know, like people who just think they're the shit and know and just like have that confidence, get the fuck out of here. Like, it's like, I feel like imposter syndrome is an incredibly healthy, but tough thing to, to, uh, to have to navigate because yeah, it's like, if you, if you don't have that, you're, you're, the art isn't going to be sincere, you know? No. And also like that, uh, it is it's insane, right? Like you have to have that, and I don't think anybody does. Even like the most egotistical asshole, it's in there. It's just they're hiding it in some some weird way. I think like being mindful of it is partly good because I think it like I work a, I write songs every single day. I think I'm constantly moving at a fast pace, like with the label, like uh, working with you know five different random projects, putting out stuff on fool's gold, um, doing whatever else I'm doing besides waves, because I, I, sometimes I feel like, well, if I just keep doing this, people won't notice that I'm not good at it (laughs) or something like that, you know? Uh, yeah, you're, you have the mindset of quantity over quality or something, but I I think you're probably being mean to yourself. (laughs) Um, yeah, maybe. So the follow-up record to that, uh, you recorded with a guy named John Hill, and I looked up his discography, and that's a shit ton of like big pop stuff. How did well? And also, I want to I want to bring up as well that then you at that point started your own label, Ghost Ramp, right? Um, right? Around that time, what was the? I guess first question: What was the motivation to start your own thing and you know build that? I just signed a deal with Warner Brothers. It was my first major label deal. Um, and, uh, it was just a lot of money. Like they gave me a lot of money. And so I was kind of like, okay, I know they're going to like own the record a little bit long. Like the terms will be a little bit different, but like, as long as it's not a 360, they don't touch merch, they don't touch touring, whatever. Fine. Um, and after a little bit of like realizing like they're going to own these, they're going to own this record for more than a decade, like this, you know, Maybe it's not worth what I actually did. I was like, you know what? I, I might as well just start my own label now so I can start. Uh, I don't have to deal with anybody else besides myself because this will pay off more in the end if I can just release stuff myself. And I had started, right? So like that was how I like made my bones was self-releasing, self-producing, playing all the instruments. So I figured the next logical step would be to start the label. That makes total sense. Did, uh, 
because I don't have the record in front of me on the back of the record. Does it say Warner brothers and ghost ramp on it? I made them put it on there. Yeah. Ghost ramp didn't make any money off of it because Warner oh, brothers sure. owned it, but putting yeah. the label name on there, I figured was like brand equity. Like it was people get to see the name and that's a start, you know? Absolutely. No, that's, that's incredibly smart. Yeah. It's even those subtleties, uh, it puts it in the head of the person who looks on the back because it, it also looks like a flex because you're like, yeah, I'm on a major label, but it's also still my thing, even if it's not really a thing just yet, you know? Yeah, it's telling the story. Like, that's what I realized a lot of the music business is. You don't realize yes. that before you do it, but you, you need a narrative. You need to tell a story and it legitimizes the label, right? A thousand percent. Um And... Also, I saw mom and pop was in, was involved as well. Um, was that for uh, like a publishing thing? Because they're, they're kind of a, are they mostly known for publishing? Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, mom and pop was a label. I don't know if they're still labeled. They were known for publishing, um, yeah. but they were a label. They were like a big indie. So they were like right. an indie label that was giving out like bigger upfront money. So they yeah. could sort of like catch, catch some of the big fish. I think like Vampire Weekend, I think was one of them. I'm not um, like Tokyo Police Club, I believe, was on there as well. Yeah. Uh, I can't remember which one they did. Or but that's interesting the, that that's interesting. That I think they might have been owned by Warner Brothers or, or something. Oh, they were like a subsidiary, maybe. That could be. I was going to say, yeah. I was curious how that all worked out, where you have this obviously major label plus a major indie and then obviously your own thing on there at all. Like it just... You know, I'm I'm such a record nerd. I, you know, as, as same as you worked in a record store for a long time, where it's like when I see that type of stuff on the back of a jacket, or if I even when I'm doing research, I'm like, to me, that all just seems very fascinating. It's like that seems like a really interesting deal that you had worked out. It was not a normal deal, um, and uh, they probably gave me more money than they should have. So it ended up being like lucrative for me I, th I had a good manager at the time and he was in good with the the majors and i had said that i would never sign to a major but i think like warner brothers was still stuck in this like oh it's like a like a grunge alternative sort of leaning record and what they had done with those records in the 90s was you know everybody was getting the check and everybody was making money and that just like the the music business was still sort of in a transitionary phase going from physical that's to a, the streaming platforms. No, and that's a really interesting point, too. I feel also like in that exact area you're talking about, um, you know, we all we all see these things go in cycles with majors where they, you know, they they catch a whiff of something that's popping on independent labels and then they want to cash in on it so they're they start then signing all of those sort of lo-fi bands around that time and yep. i mean good for those lo-fi bands that got to you know fucking get a buck or two from them um and, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. and, and and in usual circumstance it's like they end up putting out one or maybe two records and then the labels end up either dropping them or they just decide to go separate ways because they realize like oh they're still going to sell the same amount that they sold on an independent label which is not enough for us to want to maybe continue this relationship. So, right. you know, at the end of the day, the indie, the, the indie kids get a, get to finance cool shit uh, and kind of cut their losses, which is, which is cool. Um, did, uh, so talk to me about working with John Hill though. Uh, what was that? What was that like? Cause yeah, from what I saw, it's like he did your record between 
like a Snoop Dogg record and a Big Boy record. And you actually did something on a Big Boy record, right? Yeah, I wrote a song for Big Boy called Shoes for Running. That was sort of like the beginning of me and Zach Hill's stuff. So I was making beats um, and I made this like hook and a beat with John. Uh, We didn't know what we were going to use it for. And Big Boy came in and was like, I need this. And I, I, uh, John was like, Hey, big boy, like once the song, like, is that cool? I was like, are you kidding? Like, yeah, of course. Yeah. 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 And so, um, me and John went out for drinks afterwards to sort of like celebrate or whatever. I talked about how I was in like a, a deal with Warner brothers. He was doing a lot of pop stuff. So he knew those guys. So he was like, I'll do your record. Um, and I like know how to deal with these majors. Like I'll keep because I was really worried about them coming into the studio and sort of having opinions. Doing yeah. right, he was like, "I'll make sure that nobody comes in here. Like they they're afraid of me. I work with them so much." Um, and he was like, all of the stuff he was doing at the time was was getting a lot of traction. So, um, so that's how we ended up doing Afraid of Heights, and then it ended up being sort of like it took a lot longer than it was supposed to they did end up sort of coming in and like uh, there was a lot of sort of tension. Um, The record did really well. Like it was, I think it was like a billboard top 40 or top 80 or whatever. It was better than I had done before, but on the scale of what I think they were used to or expected. Yeah, totally. Yeah. This was not worth their time anymore. So after six months, they, they just sort of stopped pushing it. And so like mm-hmm. the, the record ended up still continuing to do well and made, you know, critically did well and sold well in terms of what we had done. Um, for them, it was like, okay, I still have one more record on the deal, get that done and and just get me out of there. Well, I wanted to ask about, uh, or talk to you now about your newest record, uh, Hideaway. So you record, so it's back on Fat Possum, right? Is that the is this the first one back on Fat Possum? Yeah, first one first one back on Fat Possum. That's awesome. And was that just like a yo, we made great records in the past. Like I, we know what we know what this feels like. Like let's let's pick back up where we left off. Yeah, straight shooters. Like I knew Matthew Johnson. I knew he was a sort of a weirdo cowboy, but I liked him. Uh yeah. I had a rapport and um sort of just like I wanted to keep all the like original people that I was working with. That's what I, I was at CAA for a while. I fired CAA. I went back and started working with John Chavez again in ground control. So I just sort of wanted to get back to that. Yeah. I mean, there's a thing about just like comfort and home and the people you've, you came up with and, and all of that, there's like an understanding and there's a respect and there's like just an honesty that they can kind of come from that. It's also nice to maybe have those years apart to sort of realize how great things may have been in the past. Like all of those things are really important in the, in the long run. Yeah. When I, like once I started, once I did afraid of heights and we signed that deal with the major, they sort of started, Oh, we're going to let you do everything. Don't worry. And then they sort of started pushing for, you know, they get their grubby little, hands on everything so okay we need caa because we work well with caa that's going to be good to tour and oh you need this manager because so after getting out of that i was it felt like a 
breath of fresh air to sort of go back to where I started. Absolutely. Um, who, uh, how did your, um, cause I saw you recorded this record with Dave Tech. How did that come your way? And what was, what was that situation like? Um, I knew Dave, uh, and would just sort of go over to his house to fool around with uh, all of this stuff he had. He just has great gear. Yeah. And, um, just sort of the same thing where we were writing stuff for not for waves, like same thing with John and, uh, sort of mentioned it to him. And, uh, I showed him some songs that I had gone in to record with this guy. Um, and I, this producer and I fired him after like a week because I just knew like, uh, let's not waste anybody's time. Like I can already tell this is not going to go well. Um, and so I was like, okay, we might as well just, cause we had all the songs written. Um, I might as well get somebody that I like know and trust. And there's, there's no pre recording. There's no pre studio. Like we've already basically done that in the week. We know how to record the songs so we can just go in and knock them out. So I asked Dave and he said, sure. And, uh, we went in, I, I think it took us maybe 10 days and nice. just knocked, knocked it out real quick. So I had read that, you know, uh, some of the themes and stuff like that involve, you know, the pandemic and the shutdown and all of that sort of stuff. So judging by our, our conversation, when this whole thing started, how you're writing all the time, um, you know, you're writing songs every day. Uh, I imagine during the last couple of years, you were probably writing maybe even more than before. Cause you're just inside all the time. Um, no, I no? wasn't writing at all. Yeah. Really? Uh, I, and okay. I, yeah. And it wasn't, none of it was about the pandemic it was written and recorded before that i think that was just yeah. like what journalists used for Classic. every band at the time because it was just like this is what's happening right now and inspired by the pandemic and first that wouldn't be something that would be like interesting for me to write about because it's like fucking you see it every day already so totally. all right and also because um yeah, because it was just written and recorded uh, prior to, like, it, I think maybe we recorded it, like, beginning, uh, no, end of 2019. It was when it was wow. uh, written and recorded. So far from, yeah, wow. Yeah, so uh, it didn't, when we were supposed to release it was, like, right when the pandemic started. And that's when we, like, just ended up pushing it back and back and back. Yeah. Was that tough to sit on for a really long time? I'm not totally, I'm not, worst. I didn't have to wait as, yeah, I didn't have to wait as long as you, but we finished recording our last record in like March of 2020. And then we went through the same thing where you're like, when do we fucking put this out? And how do we put this out? Um, yeah, when did you, because it wasn't when, just the pandemic, but it was also like rioting in the streets. There were like, you know, like it was a big issue with like, obviously, like people are finally talking about like cops, like murdering innocent black people. It was just not the time to to be like, hey, look at me. You know what I mean? A thousand percent. Yeah, no, all of those things are are really smart to take into consideration. And um, yeah, it's it, it becomes really tough. So um, what did you find when you and what when did the record? It says 2021. When did the record actually come out? What month was it when it came out? I have no idea. July, sure. maybe. Okay, so summer. Yeah, so it was like it was right before shows probably started to finally come back. Yeah, um, I think we ended up touring like that, like maybe a couple, like a month or two after that. So we did end up getting a tour in, and you know, 
at least in the U.S. Was it? Was it? Uh, so during so that you mentioned like you didn't really write. So during during all that time off, like, uh, did you did you come up with some new hobbies? Would you what what kept you occupied that whole time? No, I was just drinking. I wasn't doing anything. Yeah, it was really bad. I I was just I was I would just wake up and start drinking all day. Um, and then that got obviously hit a point where I was like, fuck, this is not good. And so then I, uh, I started running again. So I used to run marathons. So I was like, okay, I just need to like get outside, uh, like for a little bit every day. So I was doing like a half marathon every month, um, and just like running hills and stuff. And that was like a hobby that I picked up that, that ended up being better for me <laughs> yeah, absolutely i applaud you for for recognizing that and then also uh you know tying up your shoelaces every day and getting outside and doing that because that's i often feel like that's the hardest part is putting on the uh the, the shorts and the shoes and opening the door you know the first like five minutes of the run or just like are getting up like oh, i don't want to do this and then like after you know maybe like 10 15 minutes into it you're like oh thank thank god i did this this is great absolutely what were you are you a morning running guy are you afternoon are you a nighttime what's your story morning start the day out with it the, really? i ran yeah i ran a little bit of uh, cross country in high school and i hated it um and then uh as i got older i just i don't know something about it was it was like the only time where you get up and it's you're sort of like free of anything like it's like it was very therapeutic for me that's beautiful we are this is this is a fun this is just because i i was running for a while now i just do like uh, indoor cycling stuff but like was uh are, are you a do, do you have do you do coffee first or do you literally just like get out of bed put your shoes on and go no no i have to start with coffee and i okay. also so i've had two non-invasive back surgeries because i have five um discs in my back that are herniated which i found out because i was running so much so one day i wake up and i can't couldn't feel my hands or my feet and i was Fuck. like oh no so i go to the hospital and they're like uh yeah you have you know c8 c9 and t1 t2 herniated discs so like like my neck and and my lower back and so they're yeah. like you can't run and can't run anymore um and so I got these like steroid things called ESI. They're like steroid injections that sort of like uh, move your discs so they don't press on nerves. And the doctor just like recently cleared me to start running again. And basically with the uh, sort of um, warning that, you know, you'll have a limited time to be able to do this and then you'll, you're going to start there's nothing they can really do outside of like major surgery. That's so you just sort of have to choose. And so yeah. I just chose that I was just gonna, I'll deal with whatever happens later on. Eventually, I'll just keep running. Run. Yeah. Because like my mental health is really, really touch and go. So if I like, don't get that like little bit of like going out and getting, and it's, just, I don't know why it's just running. Like I, I really don't like doing, I do a lot of jujitsu and a lot of running and swimming. And outside of that, like lifting weights, that sort of stuff. Like I, I just, I don't like it. Yeah. Cause I mean, with running, it's, it's a constant thing. 
you know, it's like you're you're with lifting weights, you're having to think about all of this different stuff. It's starting and stopping. Like I, I that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Well, uh well, I wish you all the luck with that. And I'm glad that you found something that does help you in that sort of way. That's really important, you know? Yeah. For sure. Um, Thank you. Yeah, of course. Uh well shit, I'll hit you with the last question, which is when was the first time that you felt like you were doing the thing you'd been working so hard towards? Yeah. And a, a little peek behind the curtain. You mentioned that this was the last question to me. And this is the last question you ask everybody. And I've thought about it since you asked me. And I don't know. The, I I have no answer to this question besides I still don't feel like I work. And I don't even know what the question exactly means, but I still don't feel like I I, I don't consider what I do working hard except for like when you're out touring. So like when was the first time well, wait, say it again one more time. So, okay. So let me, I'll, I'll, I'll set it up for you. So like you're someone who's obviously very interested in music. You're, you learn how to self record. Um, all of a sudden you start, you know, mate, like for me, just listening to our conversation, thinking about it back for okay. me, I would be like, I could imagine maybe playing that show in New York could like, you're just flown to a place you've never been before. It's an exciting uh-huh. town and you're there because some random strangers thought that your music was fucking sick. So like that to me, like that feels like an experience where you're like, Holy shit. Like my music just brought me here. Why? This is crazy. Or getting to go to Europe for the first time, those sorts of experiences. But also, you know, it could be much more tinier than that. It could be like, you know, the first time I figured out how to hear, how to record myself. It could be any of those sorts of things. You know, I think that, yeah, yeah. That's what I think it is. Actually. The first time that I realized that I could do it. It's weird because I, so the first, I think the first time I realized I could do it myself just with what I had, like I didn't need to spend any money or, or, or hire anybody or do anything. I could record all the instruments myself. I could produce all of it. I could put it on the internet and people responded to it. So like when people, when people started writing articles about me from just the songs that I put on the internet that I did in my mom's uh, basement, that's, I think that was the point when I saw like, I think it was the fader. I think when the fader wrote something about me and they like wrote something about waves, like, uh, like something, something savant, I remember, or like uh, as people started like throwing around that word, like savant and genius, that, that sort of stuff. And I remember I showed my dad and he was like, you're not a genius, first of all, but remember, if you believe that you're a genius, when they say that you suck, then you'll have to believe that as well. So like, don't, don't get too excited about it. But I think that was probably the first point, which is funny because then you realize that you can do it by yourself. That's the first time. And then I think the next part that's really important is when you realize you can't do it by yourself. So it's just something yeah. to think about. Absolutely. Absolutely. This is great. I appreciate you hanging out with me, Nathan. I uh, I, yeah. I appreciate your time. This was uh, I always love when an interview comes from just uh, some some Instagram DMs, and I'm I'm honored to have uh, talked to you and to get to get to know you a little bit. I appreciate it, man. It was a lot of fun. 
And that is our show. Thank you so much to Nathan for coming on and thank you for listening. Reminder, there is a bonus episode available right now where Nathan answered questions that were submitted by subscribers. Head on over to patreon.com slash the first ever Patreon to subscribe and check that out and see what we got going on over there. Uh, Take care. Hope you have a nice rest of your week. Be good. And I'll see you next Wednesday. Bye-bye.